as you bring your mindful attention to your experience. Notice if that quality of attention has also within it a quality of acceptance, of saying yes to each moment's experience. One of the foundations for mindfulness is this quality of embracing acceptance of our experience just as it is, without pushing it away, without wanting something different. be as they are and knowing them as they are. So noticing the difference between when the intention, the mindfulness is clear but has a quality of Resistance or pushing away, not wanting. And that of when you're fully open to what's happening. This practice is learning to meet each experience with clarity, with kindness, with compassion. Before we end the meditation, I want to read a short piece from Derek Walcott. The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat, You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all of your life, whom you have ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes, Heal your own image from the mirror. Sit and feast on your life. 
So, good evening, everybody. <clears throat> Can you hear me all right? My name is Mark Coleman. I'm one of the Spirit Rock teachers. Always happy to come down here, see familiar faces and new faces. I just finished teaching uh, Retreat at Spirit Rock. Uh, we had 65 people, all of whom were under 35 years of age. Most of them were, were in their early 20s. It was a specifically young adult retreat. And uh, we had a council in the, the final evening where people got a chance to speak what was true for them. And uh, the previous day, we'd done a forgiveness meditation, which had focused primarily on forgiving oneself. And the whole room was weeping with, with, uh, with um, tears of pain that they'd had from uh, not being able to forgive themselves. And um, so this one young woman got to the council and spoke up, and she said, you know, I look around this room, and I see these really bright, young, attractive, healthy, smart people, and yet I see that everyone was weeping in this forgiveness meditation. Um, and, I, and I got how much people like myself don't accept themselves. You know, from her perspective, she was looking at everybody else as probably everybody was looking at her, as thinking, well, she's young and bright and healthy and smart, and surely she must like herself because she seems like such a great person. And that was so true for that for that age group that there was um, uh, it wasn't a beautiful group of people, and yet there was so much uh, lack of self care, lack of self love, lack of self acceptance, lack of self um, kindness. Of course, it doesn't stop just as we get older, you know. <laughs> as you all know, it seems to carry on. <laughs> doesn't necessarily get less as we get older. So I want to talk a little about that theme tonight, about love, self-love, and the place of that in practice. You know, the Buddha in the Metta Sutta talked about cherishing all living beings with a loving, boundless heart. And we often hear in these in, in spiritual teachings and Buddhist teachings about cultivating this heart of loving kindness, this uh, compassion that radiates love throughout the world, and and it all sounds kind of nice, it all sounds uh, rather glowing sometimes, and and yet sometimes when we start to um, send a little to ourselves, we we kind of hit a brick wall. We hit can often hit a sense of numbness or coldness or indifference or harshness. Uh, you know, that it's said that love begins at home, and yet it seems for many people in the West very hard to actually get the fire going in the hearth. You know, we've forgotten how to um, be kind to ourselves in a way. We've forgotten, we've lost touch with our innate goodness, our innate well-being, our innate goodwill towards ourselves. I know when the Dalai Lama first came here and when other Asian teachers come here, especially Tibetans, they can't get that people don't like themselves in the West. They just can't get it. It's just like you may as well walk on the, on the moon or something. 
it's just such a such a foreign concept that people wouldn't like themselves because it, it, that's it's just not presence for the most part in that culture. This is uh, one of my favorite pieces of poems from um, Galway Canal. The bird stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within and of self-blessing. Though sometimes it's necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower, to retell it in words and in touch, it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. And I love this line, sometimes it's necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. How true is that for ourselves? How, how often do we remember our own loveliness? You know, we live in this self-help, fix-it culture that's always telling us the zillion ways we're not kind of good enough, you know, smart enough, bright enough, bright enough slim enough, uh, rich enough, successful enough, famous enough. So our, our attention is usually going to that, to our, to our inadequacies, not to our innate goodness. So no wonder we feel um, lacking in some way, you know, because our whole culture is oriented around making us feel kind of deficient, so we go out and buy stuff, <laughs> whatever it is. You know, if, if, we, if, if our culture suddenly told us we were you know, complete just as we were, just as we are, you know, that we can be happy just as we are, you know, the, G, the GNP, the GDP, whatever it is, would, would, <laughs> would sink kind of rapidly. So, you know, I think before we come to meditation practice or spiritual practice, we do other kinds of practices. You know, we do thinking practices and um, kind of egoic practices and um, or practices that aren't necessarily that harmful, that that helpful. So a lot of people I encounter have very strong tendencies of um, self-judgment, self-criticism, fault-finding with themselves, and, and also with the world, but, but it all starts at home. And they, they, those grooves in the mind get very deep, those self-critical, self-judgmental grooves. Somebody sent me a comic strip recently of... Um, it's called the checklist of feeling pathetic. <laughs> Guaranteed checklist, and it had things like um, you know, always compare yourself unfavorably to others. <laughs> think of all the worst things you've ever done, and think about them regularly. <laughs> Make sure you look in the mirror every morning when you're looking your worst, and notice all the flaws. Um, what else was there in there? Think about all the people you've ever upset in your life, and we think about that a lot. But we, we, you know, we laugh, but we do that kind of stuff. You know, we think about our faults, and we think about those people we think are better than us, or more worthy of us. Or
So then we come to Dharma practice and we start practicing mindfulness. And it seems to get worse because we start to really see all the ways that we beat ourselves up and self-neglect and uh, mistreat our bodies and are harsh with our minds and mistreat other people. And sometimes awareness can seem like a... Uh, a cruel friend because it really reveals, you know, it's like a mirror, reveals the truth. And sometimes it feels like we're going backwards, you know. Sometimes people say, well, you know, I used to, I think I used to have good concentration and then I started meditating and, you know, I just think all the time, you know. Or I thought I was happy and then I actually realize I'm, you know, I eat a lot and I compensate a lot with all kinds of stuff and There's a, um, something from Francois Fenelon who says, As the light increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful thoughts and feelings. We never could have believed that we had harbored such things, and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But we must neither be amazed nor disheartened. We are not worse than we were. On the contrary, we are better. But while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter, and we are filled with horror. Bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive a malady when the cure begins. As I've, um, as the years have gone on, as I've done meditation practice, I've both done a lot of loving kindness practice and the Brahma Viharas, compassion practice and whatnot, and a lot of mindfulness practice. And I used to see them as quite different. And they're often framed about, you know, they are slightly different practice, they are different content practices. But I've come to see that the essence of both of them are actually very similar. And what I've come to see is the basis of, of, of love is awareness. That love and awareness really aren't separate. In the metta practice, we're cultivating love. In the mindfulness practice, we're, we're cultivating awareness and clarity. And yet, the, when you look closely at awareness, at mindfulness, it actually contains within it the qualities of love. So, for instance... When we pay attention to something with full awareness, with mindfulness, inherent within that mindfulness or awareness is a quality of acceptance, is the quality of allowing things to be as they are, the quality of not judging, not condemning. It's the state of awareness is a state of openness, a state of unboundedness. It's a state of receptivity. And they're all qualities or characteristics of love. Non-judgmental, open, receptive. Awareness doesn't have an agenda. It simply is as it is, and all things arise and pass within it. It's a little like sunshine. The sun's not going, well, shine on those you know, sunflowers over there, but to hell with that grass scrubby land over there. You know, it's all pervasive. It doesn't judge in that way. It doesn't discriminate. 
one translation of metta, the Pali word for loving kindness, is uh, gentle rain. And awareness and love is similar to the quality of gentle rain. Again, it doesn't discriminate where it lands. One of the ways I learned about love was from being around spiritual teachers. I had a spiritual teacher in India called Punjaji, who was from the Advaita Vedanta tradition. And what was remarkable about about him and other teachers that I've met who uh, are pretty awake as as they go, is um, they don't want anything from you. They absolutely want nothing at all from you. They're just there, they're teaching, they're sharing their wisdom, their hearts and their lives. But there's not any pull for you to be any particular way. There's not any demand or any expectation. All there is is just this incredible presence. And I've encountered this with quite a few different teachers and the quality is the same. And it's really the quality of love. But it's not like... the Love in, in, in Western culture has been so mixed up with romanticism and Hollywood and sentimentality and all of that stuff, clingy kind of pop song kind of love. Um, I love you if you love me and we'll be happy. You know, that, um, it's always a tr- it's like a trading. It's like, you know, it's like the stock exchange, except it's a love stock, a stock exchange. But being around a, a, a spiritual master, None of that's going on. There's just this, just this um, incredible openness and uh, non-demanding quality, non-expecting quality. And it showed me a lot about the quality of love, the potential of love, the potential we have to give that to ourselves and each other. So the good news, even though um, looking at this topic can seem kind of depressing because we'll have to look at all the ways we don't like ourselves and beat ourselves up, the good news is, um, you know, awareness is, you know, is our is is our essential nature. Awareness is is always home. We don't have to do anything to cultivate awareness because awareness is already present. And that's really our refuge in this journey and the spiritual path. And it's also the refuge in the journey of love. When we can meet ourselves and meet experience with awareness, we are naturally cultivating love. I don't see the two as separate. When we open to our pain, to our suffering, to our distress, with this open awareness, with this open heart, we naturally feel a sense of kindness or compassion. When the heart's closed, we feel resistance and and denial and repression and stuffing and uh, shutting down and we can't open to the pain. But when the the awareness is open and the, the awareness meets our own suffering or another suffering, we naturally feel compassion which is not necessarily anything spiritually grand, it's just a sense of tenderness or warmth or care or kindness. 
just like when we hold a child in pain, when we see it, you know, somebody or a good friend who's crying or in distress, we naturally feel a sense of care. When we have an open awareness, when we're not resisting the pain. When I first started practice, I had um, very strong, it kind of reminded me being on this retreat. Uh, I started practice when I was 19. And I had a very strong self-critic, very, very strong uh, self-judgment, a lot of self-hatred. and uh, found it quite hard to practice, quite hard to just be still because of that agitation that that whips up. And uh, the, the Buddhist group that I was with taught a lot of loving-kindness practices. So I, I, I vowed to do that for a year just to, just to kind of see if I could kind of thaw my heart, really, because my heart was quite numb. And, um, and it did. It, over time, I found it did. It was like thawing ice doing loving-kindness practice. But it takes a while. You know, we're used to kind of quick fixes and self-help books, the, the three steps to self-love and, you know, we expect to be complete by the end of the book, you know. And Suzuki Roshi said, any spiritual growth happens slowly. You know, we all have this idea that we're going to hit some experience and it's all just going to our heart's going to bloom into cosmic love. And, and maybe it does, but you know, as you know, nothing lasts. It's a training. This is a, a heart training, a mind training. There's a poem from Naomi Nye, a poem some of you may have heard. She's a Palestinian poet. And she speaks to this idea of um, kindness and love as something that arises in the midst of pain. It doesn't happen through avoiding it and skirting around it, but it really happens right in the heart of pain. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. You must feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate this landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must also know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it's only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow and a friend. So can we go into the heart of our pain with that quality of openness, that quality of tenderness, quality of kindness?
There was a time when I was um, doing long periods of retreats on the east coast of IMS and um, sort of meditating quite happily, minding my own business and trying to mind my own business. and um, Had some idea of what the retreat was going to be like, as you do. You know, of course, you never really do, but reality always has a way of coming in to surprise you if you get too cocky and think you've got it all planned out. And um, I had one of those retreats that was a retreat from hell. I don't know how many of you have done retreats, but this was a three-month retreat, so it's, you know, it's not the kind of retreat that you want to be the retreat from hell, but there it was. And um, I just had so much pain come up that I could hardly do the practice. It was just too unbearable. A lot of it around, you know, I thought I'd sort of work through a lot of this pain around self-judgment, self-criticism, and you know that when you think you've done with something and then all of a sudden it kind of sideswipes you because you're hitting a deeper layer. Well, I just happened to hit the, the core layer of that pattern on this three-month retreat. And uh, I was kind of knocked sideways with it, with, the, with the extent of the pain. I couldn't believe how much that pattern was still there of not liking myself and not caring for myself. And um, what surprised me, what came out of that, rather than further beating up on myself for that being there, which I could have done, and that would be a normal habit. I actually felt a lot of compassion for myself. A lot of a lot of tenderness came up because actually there was a point in the retreat where I couldn't practice. It was just too painful. I couldn't sit in meditation. I couldn't walk. I couldn't do anything. And my spiritual ego didn't like that very much because I couldn't be the good yogi. And um, but what was interesting was uh, the only thing that I could do, probably because I'd done so much meditation is I, could, I, I was able to hang out with it with awareness. And that awareness um, was no different than the, than the heart of compassion. Because that awareness had this very tender quality to it. And that's where I began to see how uh, awareness practice and loving-kindness practice weren't different. And actually, after that point, my whole practice changed because... Um, I realized that uh, what really brought about transformation was when that awareness is kind of suffused with that accepting love. That we can cultivate an awareness um, and clarity um, that can have kind of uh, other things. You know, in the Abhidharma, they would talk about it as um, other factors that kind of get associated with awareness or mindfulness. So less wholesome things. Um, and I, once I went through this shift in my practice, I realized that a lot of my early days in meditating, I was quite aware, but I was kind of also kind of doing this to myself, to my experience. There was a slight not wanting, not wanting to be there, not wanting things to be there, not wanting pain to be there. I actually had a good friend on the retreat who, much as I loved them, I also found them quite difficult because they suffered a lot. And I was, I was always a little back from their suffering because I I was kind of afraid of it. And when I went through this difficult journey in my own own process, I actually, that whole way of holding her at distance just dropped away because I was no longer afraid of my own pain. So naturally I was not afraid of her pain. It's a very interesting lesson.
you know, in that phrase, in that, that sometimes when I talk about this, people will say, well, you know, if love begins at home and I hate myself, what does that mean for all the people and things and animals that I love all my life? You know, because um, it's true, people can have a lot of difficulty with themselves, but clearly have loving relationships and love their animals and love nature and love beauty and art and all of that. And um, I kind of struggled with that question for a long time. Uh, and I realized that it's just different degrees of love. And I realized that to the extent that we're close to different parts of ourselves, even though we love somebody, it's unlikely we'll ever be able to fully open to those parts in them. And the more we can open to our own struggles, our own pain, our own suffering, the parts of us that we deny, that we compartmentalize, that we put in boxes and throw away the key, to the extent that we can open to those, to the extent our love for each other and for the world becomes that much more rich and full. This is from Nisargadatta Maharaj, a wonderful Indian saint. When you know beyond all doubting that the same life flows through all that is, and you are that life, you will love all naturally and spontaneously. When you realize the depth and fullness of your love of yourself, you know that every living being and the entire universe are included in your affection. But when you look at anything as separate from you, you cannot love it, for you're afraid of it. Alienation causes fear, and fear deepens alienation. It's a vicious circle. Only self-realization can break it. When you realize the depth and fullness of your love of yourself, you know that every living being and the entire universe are included in your affection. He has another phrase which is more well-known that goes something like, Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. And between the two, my life flows. And he's kind of pointing to that in this. When he says only self-realization can break this fear and alienation, when we see ourselves as separate, when we see ourselves as uh, separate from each other, from the rest of the world, we identify with our sort of egoic identity. The ego is driven by fear. When we see through that identification, we see through the falseness of that sense of separation. And when, we, when he talks about self-love, that love that then becomes love for all things, as, in, as can happen in the metta practice. So the other way I see these practices coming together is that, you know, one way that the Buddha described his teachings was that, um, well, many different ways, but we first we practice ethics, we practice meditation, we practice the cultivation of wisdom, but we're not practicing to, 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 um, to, to be wise in a kind of um, intellectual knowledge building sense. The purpose of wisdom is so we can let go. The purpose of wisdom is we can see the truth so we can let go. 
That's really what we're doing here, cultivating the heart of letting go. When we're in that place where the heart is letting go, not attached, not sticky, not demanding, there's a natural openness, there's a natural receptivity, there's natural connectedness, there's natural warmth and love. The Tibetans taught, Tibetan, uh, in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, particularly a couple of traditions, um, they talk a lot about how when we rest in that nature of mind, which is open and clear, wakeful, non-grasping, not fixing on anything, the natural outcome of that is a connectedness, is a warmth, is a love, a natural empathy, because we're not wrapped up in our own self obsession, our own self-grasping. So that's where those, the wisdom and the heart practices come together. So, we have a little time for discussion. Anybody has any thoughts, reflections? Comments, questions? You mentioned that the uh, Asian uh, teachers were surprised at the Western lack of self-love. What is it, do you think, uh, that makes the upbringing different? I don't know. Well, the, the, I know certainly um, for Tibetan teachers, and it, in the Tibetan culture, there's such a sense. Uh, you know, I grew up in a Catholic culture, and we grew up with original sin, so it's not a great starting point. You know. <laughs> However good the religion might be after that, it's not a great starting point. So you're basically a worthless worm, sinner. You know, that's in the that was in the the mass every week. So. That, that is a lot of um, underpinnings of Western culture, Judeo-Christian culture, is this sense of original sin or um, that kind of language or philosophy. And in Asia, there's much more a sense of Buddha nature, our essential goodness, our essential wholeness. And I think that even that small thing permeates the culture. You know, it's a really big topic and it has lots of socio-anthropological uh, dimensions to it. Um, you know, Tibetans grew up in a very profoundly steeped uh, Buddhist culture where the practices of compassion and love and awareness were really, in the, the culture was dripping in it. So that seem to lead to a much healthier uh, structure, family, self. Uh, what's interesting is uh, some of those teachers who talked about that, they now travel a lot in Singapore and Taiwan and uh, Korea where they become sort of similar industrial type cultures. And they notice the same qualities of depression 
and, and alienation starting to happen in those cultures as the kind of Western mode of living begins to take root that similar psychological mental health issues start coming up. Kindness. Could you talk about the balance between the kind of acceptance that allows the world to be as it is and the need for discernment that makes for decisions and judgments? Mm-hmm. You know, generally, I think the way the Western mind is trained, we move so quickly to assessment fix rather than accept, allow, see, respond which is a very different way of responding to a situation. So we do that with ourselves. And I certainly did that when I started meditating. It was like, saw something. Okay, how can I fix this? How can I change this? How can I get rid of this, make it better? Rather than how can I just open to it, be with it, allow it, and not react to it, and allow some time for digestion so I can have a wise response. So, um, you know, sometimes situations do require a quick discernment and action, but most of the time, actually, I think we could benefit from allowing ourselves more time to open to whatever the experience is, to feel the full dimension of it. And we use discernment in all of that. But for me, and my understanding of the practice is that out of mindfulness and awareness, mindfulness uh, gives rise to wise action, to wise discernment, to wise understanding. So so I think for most of us, we're um, redressing the imbalance of moving too quickly to... uh, reaction and fixing to more one of settling back, allowing, being with before responding. But there's a place for both, clearly.
you know, you talk about this experience of being afraid of your friend's suffering. And, but, and sometimes it's hard to relate to those people, or it's hard for them to relate to, to more of the, the perspective of um, the law of suffering. So I don't know, is that, is that a, the wrong interpretation of, of the perspective that some people don't connect to suffering, or is it... Well, I don't know how you can go through life without suffering. <laughs> I don't know many people who've managed that, much as we'd like. But we can have different relationships to it. Uh, you know, we can we can open to it and learn from it and grow from it and allow our hearts to be touched by it. Or we can, you know, stuff it and deny it and repress it and do all kinds of other funky things to not feel it and... Plenty of people choose that path. Most people do, actually. Which is why a fifth of the population are on antidepressants, I think. You know, or other substances. So I'm not sure if that, I'm not sure if what your question is in, in what you were saying. Well, I, I think there's a, a continuum there that can just really ignore it. Mm-hmm. You know, not in a way that's like, oh, I'll be addicted to something else. Mm-hmm. Just ignore it and have it. Mm-hmm. But they, you know, they just don't, people dying in, in the world or, or whatever calamity, it's not, they don't take it in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And should we try to be more that way? Because <laughs> Do you have a choice? <laughs> <laughs> it looks good from one perspective, you know, I... I it's hard to live in this world with an open heart. That's why most people don't have open hearts or don't open their hearts fully because it's too damn painful. This is a painful world. You know, just, you just open your eyes, you know, as you know. You turn on the TV, the famines, wars, suffering, oppression, violence, abuse. I mean, it's, it's endless. This is a suffering realm. And to keep a heart, an open heart in that is... Um, requires a lot of courage. You know, Chogyam, Chogyam Trungpa talked about the path of the spiritual warrior. The spiritual warrior is one who um, engages with the world with a great amount of courage. You know, the, the spiritual path is a path of courage because it requires that we open to everything and that everything includes immense pain and suffering, personal suffering, suffering of friends, suffering of the world, it's it's no mean feat. I once heard that the Buddha said, the reason why we don't get enlightened quickly is because we couldn't open to all the suffering in the world that that would entail. Our system couldn't handle it. It's a slow opening to the reality, which is why we also develop equanimity practices, practices that help us find some place of ease or surrender to the fact that life is full of pleasure and pain. That no matter how much we wish the world to be different, wish ourselves and wish others to be different, things are as they are. Things things follow the law of karma. People reap the actions of their consequences. So... um, It's true, some people don't seem to be so bothered by that, and some people are. 
usually most people I'd say in this room are probably deeply affected by suffering, either personally or the world or both. So our challenge is how to live with equanimity and balance. And how do we live so we don't take on the world's suffering, so we're thoroughly depressed, and we don't watch CNN every day and you know, expose ourselves to every single piece of misery that's happening, which the media will quite happily give us if we read it all. Um, you know, how do we balance that with the beauty and joy and preciousness of life? It's no mean task. Please. One of the, I think one of the things that's one of the ways in which our Western minds are taught that or sort of taught to think dualistically is all or nothing. Yeah, we can't help thinking of it in terms of linear terms or black and white, as you say, extremes. Or we think of it as the path as you know, this movement of becoming more and more aware or more and more heartful. Well, it's, it's more like we open our hearts and then we shut down and we try to open to that again and we close down and we get overburdened and we it's just this ebb and flow. We really want it to be linear. <laughs> you know, the path starts now and it grows to this beautiful, wide, sunny, shine path. But it's more like, you know, trekking through the mountains. Sometimes we hit very dark valleys. You know, sometimes we've been practicing for 20 years and we're stuck in some thick forest and we're like, what the hell am I doing here? And <laughs> what was all that about if I'm, you know, dealing with this stuff again? us humble. You know, the path is a movement to more and more not knowing. You know, we think it's a path to knowing and wisdom and knowledge. <laughs> and it's really true that we just know less and less. And we really just get that. <laughs> Whatever we do know is pretty small compared to what is or what's possible. Nine o'clock? I think we're at time. Any last comments, questions? Please. Could you just give the reference for the uh, Palestinian woman? Naomi, uh, Naomi Shihab Nye. The last name is N Y E, and she has a book out called. I don't know. <laughs> That's not the name of it. Um, I don't know. But she's a wonderful poet. All of her poems are beautiful. 
So, um, may we all continue to open our hearts, open our awareness, and live with compassion and self-love. Thank you.